Welcome to all the brand new members of HPR. We got a thousand new members. That's great. And of course, welcome to another edition of Bite Marsh Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and of course, the startup scene. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa. We're going to kick off today's show learning about the upcoming Hawaiian Telecom University. Ryan Miyamoto is here to tell us all about it. And then we'll hear what it's like to be an artist with a science organization. Uh, Kirsten Carlson and Michelle Schringel-Rigala will share their experiences both on the Schmidt Ocean Institute Fall Corps and, of course, over at the Bishop Museum. Absolutely. And but, of course, first off, we want to welcome Ryan Miyamoto from Hawaiian Telecom to tell us about their upcoming HT University. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. You now, have a Ryan, great name, Ryan. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's the best name ever. It's, it's good to have people with the same name that I don't really mess up the names. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Growing so, up, that was always the, the big thing was having more than one Ryan in my class. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. So, Ryan, um, tell us a little bit about uh, your background or what, what do you do at Hawaiintel? So I'm a senior product manager, and, mm-hmm. and product manager is always a, it's a difficult thing to define to people exactly what it is you do. But pretty much what I do is I, I oversee a, a line of business in terms of the product ideation to development to release to market based on what we see in the market and what we think people will buy. Mm-hmm. And what types of products are you managing? So I, I oversee the our business data products mm-hmm. and our our business broadband products. So in, in the business markets, everything from our small business, internet services, up towards our you know, our large 10-gig point-to-point type of circuit. What, what, what kind of data, what, when you say data products, what would typically be a, a data product? So a, a data product for us would be we we like to define those as, as private networking. So mm-hmm. uh, a, a business that needs to connect more than one site from, say, Maui to, to Honolulu and be able to, to push through 10 megabits of any type of data. It can be internet traffic. It could be voice over IP. It, it could be all sorts. Whatever, whatever is driving their business, we're able to, to push that through our network. Absolutely. Now, for this event, Hawaiian Telecom University, happens every year, a full-day program, t- covers a lot of tech topics, but there's usually a theme. Um, what is this year's Hawaiian Telecom University theme? So this is our, our, our almost our 10th year doing it, wow. and this year's, this year's theme is, is business meets the smart world. So the smart world, you know, that, that that's something that, that – Usually, is open for for definition in, ter- yeah. in terms of what exactly are we are we looking at. But primarily, we're looking at at the abundance of data that that's out there and how mm-hmm. that's shaping both businesses and consumers in terms of how how they how they purchase, how they how they utilize, how they do basically how they how they they do things. So it, it's a, it's a really exciting topic for us. Mm-hmm. Now, in the you know in the olden days when some of the data services were things like you know like frame relay and ISDN and point to point circuits, I mean that's that's gone way beyond that, right? I mean now it's primarily like LAN services, right? Yes. So that that's one of the 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 big differences I think over over the years is that the technology has evolved to the point where the the lines between LAN and and WAN are, are blurring, mm-hmm. and that's just just. A, a function of the amount of bandwidth that, that a lot of these applications are requiring these days. So when a customer wants to connect, I mean, are you connecting them with basically sort of a, an Ethernet-type service at the stage of, you know, they want to connect uh, remote offices or whatever. You're bringing them an Ethernet service, and it's like, you know, it could be 10 gig. It could be whatever. whatever. Yeah, exactly. And, and the cool thing is that 
people are familiar with that. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. starting to date yourself by saying frame really. Ah! <laughs> I was about to say, Bert, Bert is really enjoying showing off his deep and rich history no, in no, the it's, earlier it's days antiquated of, history of telecom and uh, data centers. <laughs> so for this event, I mean, I imagine connectivity is a big part of what will be covered, but what are some of the other sessions or, or, or topics that are going to be covered? Yeah, absolutely. So data connectivity is, is a big thing, but really this this year's theme is, is around how to utilize the data that's out there. And this can range from you know, small businesses. When you, when you look at, when you go to a restaurant for lunch, for example, mm-hmm. and, and you see what the, some of those point-of-sale systems, there's an, an incredible amount of data that a, even a small business has access to these days. Now, granted, that that comes with, with some consequences in terms of data security. We hear about you know, breaches and, and malware and things like that all over the place. So there's, there's both the pros and the cons. There's tons of opportunity to be able to, to utilize all that data that's out there. And there's also the, the side effect it. of figuring out how do you protect all that data. So our, our conference is actually going to cover from both of those angles. We'll have, we'll have speakers from, from industry leaders such as, as our keynote is, is from a, a company called Fjord, which you Probably most people haven't heard of that, but they're actually the digital arm of of Accenture. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And his topic is going to be on building really intelligent services that that utilize it. Because at at, at the end of the day, it's it's really about being able to utilize the data data that's there mm-hmm. and intelligently use it, as opposed to just having data for the purposes of having it. And it's important to note that this is, you know, definitely for a broader audience, and it's not all Hawaiian telecom speakers. So you have a keynote speaker. Who are some of the other people uh, or uh, partners or companies presenting? Yeah, so one of one of our, our, our the cool things about this type of event is that we're able to to attract speakers. And a lot of these speakers, that that's really what they do is they, they go on a global basis from, from conference to conference. And one of the cool things is being able to, to bring them to Hawaii and allow people to to really participate, really engage with them without having to leave the island. A lot of times you have to to do that. You have to hop on a plane and visit a, a conference. Sure, so, sure. For example? So we've got folks such as as a speaker from, from Fortinet. We have a speaker from Palo Alto Networks. We also have mm-hmm. local panel um, speakers, which are both local uh, IT professionals who are, are – going to be there to share their expertise as well as as some national speakers who are specializing in some of the topics we'll be having. Now, cloud services are, are always uh, kind of a hot topic for some of these technology uh, conferences. Are you going to be talking about some of the cloud services and how you might deliver that here in Hawaii? Well, we'll, ha- we'll have some, some sessions around cloud services. We're also going to be having a technology expo showcase where we'll be showing some of the cloud services that both Hawaiian Telecom as well as some of our partner uh, solution providers are are providing now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Great. So this uh, program, when is it happening? Where is it happening? And how can someone sign up to participate? So our Hawaiian Telecom University is going to be on Thursday, May 11th. It's from 8.30 in the morning to 4, and it'll be at the Hawaii Convention Center. Okay, mm-hmm. great. And re- it's, it's registration is free. You can do that from our website, hawaiintel.com slash htu. Great. So we'll post it up on our show notes later on this evening. So Ryan, we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Great. And, of course, uh, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be talking to Kirsten Carlson and Michelle Schrengel-Ringala about their artists with some of these science programs. And, of course, connecting science through art is a great, uh, I think, a combination. Don't go away. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. 
Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. HPR fills the, I guess, non-commercial gap that's left by providing a variety of both news and entertainment and quality intellectual programming that you don't see or hear. And I think it provides sort of more truth-telling to the community than you get on many stations. Hi, my name is Bruce McEwen, and I'm a sustaining member of HPR. Aloha. This is HPR Music Director Gene Schiller with a warm mahalo for your support during the recent fund drive. Your generous financial contributions will help us continue to build your home for classical music on HPR 2 and your home for news, information, and other worthy music on HPR 1. A special welcome to the nearly 1,000 first-time members and new Cornerstone Society donors. See you in the music library at our next station event. Welcome back to Bike Marsh Cafe. Joining us now are Kirsten Carlson and Michelle Schwengel Regala. And of course, Kirsten is a freelance illustrator living on an island, of course, Oahu. And I think you can tell us a little bit more about your history. She creates products and collaborates on projects. Uh, that connect people with nature. Michelle, meanwhile, is a scientific illustrator and fiber artist, currently working as an artist at the University of Hawaii uh, at Manoa Art and Art History Department. And, of course, how does your art make science more accessible? We want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. Aloha. Thanks for having us. Great to have now, you. Now, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to... Um, not give you full credit for the kind of art you do, so I want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about the art that you do. Like I know, I know, Michelle, you do a lot of uh, knitting and illustration, so maybe tell us a little bit about the art that you do. Sure thing. Um, Kristen and I share some backgrounds. We both began as scientists. Mm-hmm. We studied science in college. I was studying entomology, wildlife ecology. I was a taxonomy geek for the longest time. I loved my beetles and things. But then one of my professors asked if he if he could hire me as a science illustrator in okay. his research lab. So that was how I got a start as an artist. And that was how I worked through college. I was doing scientific illustrations. I found a graduate program in science illustration at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And Kirsten also was in that program, actually a couple of years before I was there. So it's funny that we almost crossed paths hmm. but did not meet there. Mm-hmm. Now, That's as a fantastic. science illustrator uh, and getting a degree, was that in the science uh, department or was that in uh, an art department? At UC Santa Cruz, they had a, a, a program or a department called the Science Communication hmm. A division oh, and right. then yeah. it was an interesting collaboration between science writers and science illustrators. Mm-hmm. So we were in sister programs and we collaborated with each other on certain projects. So it was great to be in tandem with those other professionals, you know, doing our development in the field. And I did. I, I have to note your shirt that I was just reading. I will knit on a boat. I will knit with a goat. It's a <laughs> it's a full poem about how great knitting is. That's and right. that's a good point because before <laughs> we give it to Kirsten, I want to hear about your knitting. How did you go from illustrator to to being a, a, a knitter. Right. Pretty disparate, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think so, too. Um, let's see. I illustrated for 15 years. I worked at natural history museums, but then I moved to Hawaii, and I started doing more fine art, natural history painting, watercolors. 
But the real shift came when I became a parent. I realized that I couldn't sequester myself in the studio and try to work on things with so much detail while I was being a parent of a newborn. And at that point, I I drew from what my grandmother was always doing, Mm. and she was knitting and crocheting. So so I started using that as an art medium. And I was really glad to be able to have that, something more family-friendly, flexible, not so permanent. Helps keep you warm. Yes, that too. (laughs) Now, Kirsten, uh, fiber artist, that's one of the things you do, but you also have a pretty diverse artistic uh, repertoire. Yeah, all I knit are scarves, so (laughs) I'm definitely not in the fiber field. My background is marine biology and ornithology. So Mm. as an undergraduate in Missouri, very far away from here, I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. And after I graduated with a biology degree, I moved to California and went into graduate school at Moss Landing Marine Laboratories. Mm -hmm. While I was there as a grad student, I got this amazing opportunity to go to Antarctica. And I did six weeks of underwater transect surveys with a video camera. They called me the the video goddess down there, video queen. (laughs) (laughs) So I was supposed to do my thesis down there. When I got back, I realized that a future as a scientist wasn't really my cup of tea. I'd always been a communicator. Like, I'd always been artistic. I just thought of it as a hobby. But when I found out about science when I was about 13, it, it took my breath away because I love being able to understand the natural world around me. So Antarctica really kind of brought home that what I really wanted to do is connect people to nature. So when I got back to California after my first trip down there, I was supposed to write my thesis and create it down there. I decided that um, instead I was going to get into science communication and Moss Landing was 30 minutes down the road from Santa Cruz, the same place that Michelle went to school. And the first day I went to class, I was blown away by this amazing thing you could do combining science and art. I was Mm. home. So Mm -hmm. I never looked back. And then after that, I went into... Uh, I was one of the first people to do website design. So that kind of puts me in the 1994, 1995 uh, class. Right on, right on. Yeah. Go Netscape. So at... Monterey Bay Aquarium, I was the first web designer, and then I went into graphic design and exhibit design, and what that did for me was fantastic. It actually helped me create um, a big skill set, which let me communicate with people. I I understood typography. I understood how to design three-dimensional spaces. I did interactives. I got to Mm. use my scientific illustration training and my science training. Mm -hmm. So it was a fantastic experience. Working more with digital fiber, connectivity that way. Yes. (laughs) And then just to close it up, what happened after that is I went into children's books. So I freelance in science communication, everything from working with scientists to do scientific illustrations to doing children's books to get kids excited about nature. Now, that's um, you know, this interesting that you folks both had kind of a a, a uh, common crossing, you know, at the University of California, and then uh, now in terms of participating in a program with the Schmidt Ocean Institute and going out on the Falkor, I, I kind of want to hear uh, how you both perhaps got involved with that and and what that experience was like. So. So maybe, Michelle, we just, we'll start with you. And how did you get attracted to going out on a ship like the Falkor? Sure. When I was at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, I was in the fiber department. And and uh, while I was there as an artist in residence, I was given the opportunity to make a project that could be whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I immediately gravitated toward the marine biology department, SOEST and all those acronyms over there. There was a student I knew who was doing her PhD on liparid fish, the deepest fish in the ocean. And she had been on the Falcor as a scientist 
capturing some of these specimens from these deepest trenches, the Hadal Zone. Mm-hmm. And, and so that became the focus of my installation where I knitted these fish and other creatures. Mm. But then never did I believe that I would be on that ship someday. So a year later, the professor at UH told me about an invitation for people to apply to this Artist at Sea residency or this Artist at Sea program mm-hmm. where the, the science crew gets one more person added into their group. And in this case, it's an artist. So the artist is meant to interpret what the science crew is doing during each voyage. And there had been one person prior to the time I applied who's a photographer, and I applied. You know, I was assuming there were going to be a lot of science illustrators applying. I decided to work my current angle of fiber art mm-hmm. and apply with that perspective. And they, they jumped on that. So I went to see. I, I got yarn from the Big Island, and I, I went knitting across <laughs> Polynesia. <laughs> That's great. Were, was there an, an objective you wanted to try to meet as a result of being on the ship for that period of time? I wanted to survive. Okay, I wanted to good. be able to fulfill my obligations. I wanted to help visualize what was no, happening. Well, when you say obligation, what would mm-hmm. that obligation be? Mm-hmm. Part of my application had the the category of proposals of things I would I would propose to do while I was mm-hmm. on board. Okay. And I didn't understand the bioge- biogeochemistry that the scientists were doing, mm-hmm. but I still applied. I still went for it and and was, in the end, able to illustrate the data sets that the scientists were looking at, illustrating the qualities of the water columns at the stations where we were stopping between here and Tahiti. So I was able to use my my background, our shared background with Kristen as... as, um, That's okay. I'll I'll mess up the name as well, so you won't be alone. In our our graduate program, we learned about information graphics, and, and that's essentially what I created in textiles. I was showing what the scientists were looking at on the computer screens. Mm -hmm. Great. And your uh, Kristen, your participation. <laughs> so my participation was a, started about a year after Michelle went. So I just got back from it in February. Mm. And the way I found out about it is somebody I paddle outrigger canoes with told me that uh, she works at UH, and she told me that there was a call for artists. So I applied, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. The one thing that is great about the Schmidt Ocean Institute Artists at Sea program is that it gives artists a chance to see things with technology that is invisible to us normally. So for Michelle being able to look at the water column, scientists use these tools all the time to be able to visualize things in the ocean. But as an artist, we don't get access to them a whole lot. So because of our science background, it actually we can speak scientists. So for me, anyway, I had some wonderful conversations and got really excited about plankton was the theme of my cruise. It was with a group of NASA scientists and other scientists from around the world. And it was focused on looking at particle investigation from sea to space. Mm-hmm. Now, we had the opportunity to visit the um, uh, an exhibit over at the uh, Arts at Mark's Garage. Mm-hmm. And that was put on by Schmidt Ocean Institute. And I think Carly Weiner was you know, kind of a, a, a key proponent of, of organizing that show. I think that was before your actual experience on the Falkor. Uh, Perhaps you could describe besides, you know, I think you did some illustrations of plankton. What else were you able to uh, produce as a result of going on that uh, voyage? One of the things I was really excited about, I had known about Artists of Sea programs from places other than Schmidt Ocean Institute. And it goes back in history to some of the people that we really nerd out on in science illustration 
uh, William Beebe and Alexander Humboldt. These people all went out on ships a couple hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, and they used artists to visualize what they saw. So the reason I wanted to go out on the ship was to use some of the technology that they use. So one of the things I got really excited about, aside from using the technology that the 21st century scientists had at their disposal, is I brought along a tool from the 1700s called a cyanometer, which was basically a circle with 60-something shades of blue, and it helped people back in the day identify the color of the sky. And then Alexander von Humboldt also used it to identify the color of the sea, but it relates to how much particulate matter is in the sky. Mm -hmm. So every day I would go out on the monkey deck, which is the highest deck on the RV Falcor, and I would shoot a a picture of the cyanometer with the sky and the sea, and, and then I would do a watercolor of it. Oh. So I'm, I'm really interested in this, you know, this potential of people being on the ship while research is happening, participating in the research and documenting the research um, with these new, with through an artist's eyes. Is this something that you do kind of like a, a courtroom sketch artist and you're, you're trying not to interfere or be part of the whole operation? Or are you in there and is the, are the scientists in with you and, and looking at your knitting and talking about your knitting and having all of these conversations about the work you're doing right there? There was a really good mix. I, I saw that the Schmidt organizers had um, presentations that the chief scientists and the other scientists were giving to everyone on the ship so that everyone could get up to speed on what they were going to be doing during that voyage. And I think that now the program has evolved so that the artist at sea is also giving a presentation to the other crew members. Mm. Um, while I was out... It, I was only a second person, so they were still figuring out the, the rapport that everyone would establish. But everyone welcomed me so warmly. I was really happy to be able to have conversations at any time of the day, to ask any questions, to get answers to things. Did you meet other, right other in knitters in the crew or teach someone? <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there was interest in knitting, but nobody had time to right, mess with busy. that while they're they were busy. doing their own tasks. And so <laughs> I was on task as well. Uh, well, so, you know, with the with the Schmidt Ocean Institute, I mean, they have uh, been – pretty good about having artists go out at sea. And I'm curious to hear what you both think about in terms of um, the Schmidt Ocean Institute organization and how they are looking at sharing the art to the scientists as opposed to the scientists sharing their science to the artists. So how much of what you do really impacts the scientists? Wow, I can speak to that. I had a really great experience on my cruise. Several of the scientists actually were very creative already. Mm -hmm. And several of them, if you go back and read the blog posts that they did, um, I actually helped influence them to have some creative ideas and and process information a bit differently had I not been on the ship. And that was perhaps the most rewarding thing that I experienced. So one of the scientists on board is a very good artist. And she drew her own instrument because, of course, she knows it like the back of her hand. And another artist shared with us this, um, uh, sorry, another scientist actually shared with us a wonderful animation done with cutout paper that she had done. And I was blown away by the creativity. So uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute does a great job of getting us together. And then what happens on the ship is really up to the artists and the scientists. But the scientists really were engaged. And I actually taught art classes to not only the scientists (laughs) on board, but the crew. They loved it. You know, we're talking to... uh Kirsten Carlson and Michelle Schwengel-Regala, and we're talking about 
being an artist with a science organization, and I think it's pretty cool that the Schmidt Ocean Institute were able to incorporate sort of this this artist element into their voyages. But you're both also involved with some other organizations like, you know, Bishop Museum and with Coconut Island. And, and maybe you can share a little bit about what that experience is like. Mm-hmm. Michelle? Um, one of the first fiber art projects that I worked on was the Hawaii Hyperbolic Crochet Coral Reef Project. And that was the first time that I started using fiber as a sculptural material depicting elements from nature. Did you say crochet coral reef? That's right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Some of our listeners may have seen that at Merck's Garage in the Hawaii Craftsman window back in Mm -hmm. 2010 or 11, was it? But but that was apparently on the radar of folks at the Bishop Museum when they were putting together their journeys exhibit this past fall. And they invited me to bring in some of those models, some of those specimens to include within the, the long gallery, which had elements from the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. So I, I was happy to be able to have those, 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 those models represented. And then that became an invitation for me to be at the Bishop Museum as, a, as an artist working in whatever medium I wanted to work on at the time. But I would be in the gallery as a, as a, as a representative of, of how art and science can intersect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the, the, the approach that I took kind of evolved. At first, I was just working on fiber product projects, but then I decided to talk with other collections managers and curators within the research department, and I borrowed some specimens from the entomology collection. I started doing some other illustrations. So Hmm. in a way, it has brought me back to my beginnings, has allowed me to get my hands on some specimens again, and then highlight things that are in the research side of the museum that the public doesn't always see. So that's been really rewarding, and I'm still there on a a regular basis on Tuesday mornings. And Kirsten, when you're not on a boat, uh, what, what are you creating? So I'm out at Coconut Island at the Hawaii Institute of Marine biology working at the Maker Lab with Dr. Judy Lemus, Mm -hmm. and I'm doing education outreach products. So all that experience I have as a graphic designer and illustrator, we're collaborating, and interestingly enough, we're doing something on plankton. I just can't get enough of it. (laughs) Uh, But we're we're creating an education outreach product. So her Maker Lab idea is like a maker space, but for scientists and teachers. I love it. And I'm working in part with her to create something visual for the scientists and teachers to use. So I hear a, a kind of a theme where the artist is really helping to communicate the science to a broader audience. And, and is that what you're accomplishing with the outreach program? It, it is. And not only that, I think Michelle and I both have the mission to try to cross as many boundaries as we can and connect with diverse audiences from youngsters to knitters to people who like to draw to people who are afraid of science and make it really approachable. Mm-hmm. I love um, sharing what you've created, but obviously uh, and hopefully this is a field that is growing and expanding. And, and I wanted to hear what are some other intersections of science and art that you've seen that have inspired you or just completely surprised you or blown your mind? Wow, I'm drawing a total <laughs> blank. Um, I'll, I'll say that the the Guild of Natural Science Illustrators is an organization that's been around for 50 years, and that was the organization that gave us support in our early years as mm. illustrators. There are people that have been in the industry for their entire careers, and, and they have annual conferences and chapters around the United States and, and publications that also give continuing education to people who are in that industry. And it's not clearly not just visual because uh, you like a fiber arts. Or, or, I would imagine are there musicians <laughs> or you know different kinds of ways to convey the work the work product of science. Oh, the Falcor also hosted a, a composer during this past oh, year. Nice. They had a, a a man who is who is 
plinking out music on his keyboard that yeah, he had on board. <laughs> I'd like to hear if you have come across any young students that perhaps uh, saw some of your your uh, choral um, um, pieces in, in yarn and, and were inspired to either go the art direction or the science direction. I mean, do you have any stories like that? Um, when I when I see kids being so excited about this stuff and wanting to touch the the specimens and relating it to things that they have seen as they're tide pooling or in or in books, I'm I'm so excited about that. Clearly, they're making connections between what they see in the natural world and what we've made as models and and what what our capacities are for for sculpting or for drawing. That's that's very exciting. Yeah, and for me, the the reward of going into classrooms and talking with kids about the mm-hmm. children's books I've created and teaching them actually how to draw a snail or a crab or a penguin and have them show back to me something that I've showed them how to do, but they add their own flavor to it. It's very rewarding. Kristen, where can someone go to find uh, some of your work or what you've been up to? The... For the Schmidt Ocean Institute product that I created, which is a big plankton poster, you can actually download one for free that's a printable size at the Schmidt Ocean Institute website. Oh, great. We'll put and, that up. And it's on the education page. And then the place to find my work is on my website, www.kirstencarlson.net. Mm-hmm. And real quickly, mm-hmm. I currently have work at the Honolulu Biennial at the Hub location it's oh, for yes. a few more yeah. days. But that is all work that was inspired by my time on the Falcor. Very good. Fantastic. Well, Kristen, Kirsten Carlson is the illustrator, is an illustrator, and of course Michelle Schwengel Regala is a fiber artist. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Bert and Ryan. Thank you. Mahalo, <laughs> both of you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week, and we're going to learn about STEM in schools and the STEM conference. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovic. And, of course, you stay safe, and we will see you back here next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. I've no wish to worry you. Surprise.